Hi, and welcome back to the VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and I'm joined by Matt Mullen. How are you, Matt? I am excellent. And Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Uh, living. Excellent. As so you say. guys, you're joking, but you guys have it a lot worse than I do right now with the uh, COVID, and uh, I feel really sorry for you guys. That's uh, miserable, the situation you find yourselves in in the U.S. We're living on yeah. Arrakis. Well, I think Matt and I are Fremen at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This this sleeper's going back to sleep, I think, for yeah. another few months. It really is incredibly, I, I you know, sympathize with anyone listening to the show who uh, is, uh, you know, in either isolated because of this or, or far worse uh, affected. I had um, a colleague who, uh, you know, I hadn't heard from for a little while. No surprise. You know, you don't talk to everybody all the time. And suddenly they appeared and said they'd been uh, in hospital and, uh, of course, hadn't passed away. But the the thing that I was going to point out is that they, like so many, uh, were one of those people that got sick and then it has been like 12 weeks trying to get back on their feet again. So, I mean, the headline numbers, of course, are the infections and the uh, deaths and, and rightly so, I guess. But I feel so sorry for all those people that are sort of recovering from it and they're going to have these incredibly long-term um, yeah scars on their lungs and stuff it's just a horrendous the long haulers thing. as they're called yeah i think too for yeah. one of the biggest things here at least in the u.s and i know in a few other countries too is the people who are working trying to save these people and working every day like all the healthcare workers and stuff the yeah the amount of time and commitment and just the endless stress you know spending and anxiety like spending all that time uh, all day every day uh, just overworked mm. and really underappreciated. I think it's got to be so hard. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. The frontline workers just deserve our eternal thanks. But um, through partly good luck and partly through um, not having certain um, governmental uh, biases, we uh, we find ourselves without any cases here in Australia. So uh, we consider ourselves very lucky. So we That's hope excellent. you guys uh, uh, catch up. Now, look, we're here to talk about the film Dune or Dune, Dune, depending on your accent. And um, this is the original uh, film from 1984, though we obviously wanted to discuss it in light of the fact that the 2021 film adaptation of the original uh, Frank Herbert science fiction novel is coming out. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, that Matt, you're going to tell me that you thought the 1984 version was like remarkable, interesting and wonderful, because I believe you, it was your idea to suggest having the show this week. Yeah, well, okay, so Dune is, the 1984 David Lynch version of Dune is, I think, a fascinating uh, artifact of a movie. That's how I would like to refer to it. Like, is it a great movie? I don't think you can say it's a great movie, but I have to say there are certain things in it that I do think are really well done. There are some things in it that are terribly done. But I think that it's also, uh, it's a it's a project that, you know, in coming to the screen took many different versions and iterations, it was difficult to get to the screen uh, at all. But it is a De Laurentiis production. And I think De Laurentiis, uh, to me, in my mind, always sort of is associated with an incredible amount of like ambition, but kind of cheap, you know, like, <laughs> like great ambition I mean and poor execution. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would have been slightly more interesting to take the $40 million that they spent on this film and put it at Burning Man and set a light to it and watch it go up in smoke. But 
That's before I realized this was a David Lynch film. So Jason, what do you think? I think I agree with Matt pretty much across really? the board. I also I also think that this is maybe David Lynch's reaction to being offered Return of the Jedi, which was the famous story. And well, now you have to recount probably, that story. Uh, well, Lynch tells a story. You can find it online if you just Google it. That he got a call from, uh, he got a call from George Lucas, uh, or from a, a a a producer or somebody that was like, "Hey, you know, George wants to meet you, and we want to, you know, um, to take you to lunch up in Marin." And he was in L.A. And he was like, ah, no, I'm not really interested. And then his manager called him, whatever, and was like, you have to take this meeting. I, You don't have to say yes, but you have to take the meeting. He's like, okay. You know, in his Lynchian fashion, he's like, so I get on a jet and I fly up to San Francisco and I, and I get, you know, I get it picked up in a limo and I, I already have a headache and, you know. And he's like, and I go meet George and he's telling me about like space bears and spaceships and all this kind of stuff. And, and all, and George pulls up in this crazy Ferrari sports car. And I'm like, oh my God, I have a, my headaches just getting worse. And, uh, and, uh, I guess throughout the, the lunch, he was just like, I, there's, he's like, and all George would eat with salad. And it's just, this, it's just a crazy story that I'm not doing any justice to. But anyway, it, it goes through a whole thing. And then he basically says, uh, thank you. Lucas gets in his car, drives away. He goes to the airport, calls his manager and is like, there's no fucking way I'm doing this movie. And his manager's like, you do what you want. I'm just telling you, if you do this movie, you can do anything you want for the rest of your life. He's like, I don't care. I'm not doing this movie. And I think, I think Dune is probably... When that came around, I don't know the specifics of how he got it, but when that came around, Dune is clearly a more cerebrally respected uh, property than Star Wars probably was at the time, uh, and certainly to David Lynch. And I think, you know, he was probably like, okay, I'll do this one. You know, I, I don't have to deal with, I can do my own thing. Yeah, I you think know. What, what I remember hearing about was that um, he was offered, he'd seen Star Wars, you know, everybody had seen Star Wars when it came out, and Lynch had, and, and was you know, not quite as impressed with it as a lot of people in that. I think he, he talked about it being something that it felt more like it was uh, kind of more surface. And he was approached after doing um, Elephant Man, he was approached by Rafaela De Laurentiis, who was going to produce Dune. And uh, it, had, it had already gone through a couple iterations, which we can also talk about right. prior to that, the yep. Jodorowsky version. And Ridley Scott mm -hmm. was actually on tap to direct yep. the well, that uh, been first good. version of Dune. But yeah, he, there's the whole Dan O'Bannon connection and whatever, yeah. But. Right, yeah, and then he he backed out to go make Blade Runner, uh, which was a good choice, I think, in the long run. <laughs> yeah. Lynch, Lynch was tapped by Rafaela De Laurentiis to come in after she saw The Elephant Man and thought that it, she, it was interesting that he was able to work with both like drama and character, but also with uh, physical, like practical effects, like the, the right, John Merrick makeup effects and stuff, and really humanize that in a way. And so uh, he read the book, Dune, he'd never read it before, and was so kind of blown away by the depth of character development and stuff. And, and we could talk a little bit about the book if you guys want. But um, And he uh, then uh, worked on a script with um, uh, Frank Herbert, or met with Frank Herbert, I think, for like a month and uh, hung out with him. 
and uh, talked about the characters, talked about the story, and then worked with some screenwriters and wasn't really happy with the way the script turned out. So he actually asked Dino De Laurentiis if he could just do a draft himself, if Lynch could. And so he did his own draft of the script, and that was uh, the one that they wound up producing and, and uh, going into production in uh, Mexico City, where they did most of the work for the film. Yeah. I mean, I hated it. <laughs> Let's be clear about this, right? And not only did I hate it, but this is the VFX show. And like, if you told me this was made, I actually had to look this up because I thought that it was made after uh, Empire. But I thought, no, the effects in this are so bad that there's no way that two years after Empire, the industry had progressed backwards this fast. And yet <laughs> it in fact was stunningly um, nothing like as good as Empire. Yeah. So the story, there's a great story too behind the visual effects though, in that like um, there was a, they had hired Apogee to do a lot of the work, which was John Dykstra's company. And they were going to do a bunch of the work for the movie. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of miniature work and it, it's all, almost, it's all practical effects, right? It's all opticals yeah. and rotoscoping and, um, and miniature work. Um, and some, some of it, you know, some of the miniatures are, are pretty cool. They're sort of interestingly designed, I guess you could say. And, and, uh, Dykstra's and, and Ap Dykstra and Apogee were on board to do the bulk of the effects. And then, um, uh, they really wanted, because they were shooting in Mexico city at the studios there, they were close to this, uh, desert, the, uh, in Mexico where they were going to shoot some of the exteriors. And, uh, Dino De Laurentiis was all about like saving money and cutting costs. And he wanted them to bring all of their equipment that they were going to do for motion control work and stuff down to the studio, uh, in Mexico. And, uh, Apogee and Dykstra felt like it wasn't really going to work out the way that they wanted it to with their gear. And they were worried about like the um, mm -hmm. the fluctuations in like the power grid in Mexico and sure. they screw yeah, up some of, of their kit and stuff. And so they wanted to do all their work back in Los Angeles and, uh, De Laurentiis. So they kind of had a parting of ways. Like there was a disagreement. They'd already done some of the work. They'd shot some, I think Vista vision, uh, plates and stuff like that. Um, and elements, uh, and then they brought in another company who I I'll have to look up their name, but they brought in another company who came in to finish up the effects and they decided to do uh, the bulk of everything for Perf, I guess. And they took all their gear uh, down to Mexico and kind of, it was uh, a low, like really ultra low budget kind of uh, approach to doing the effects. And I think that that certainly does show on screen. There are mm -hmm. some beautiful map paintings. There's some incredibly mm -hmm. gorgeous and I think, very inspired production design and uh, oh yeah it's a really good it was a really good design there was a really good matte painter on this right it was um uh gosh one of the matte painters on this was like phenomenally good um yeah there's a reason why somewhere. those matte paintings are so good uh that i did agree like there's a couple of things i thought were really good i thought that the the way they did the sand with the sand monster was really good mm -hmm. like it actually scaled remarkably well and i know they had to yeah as you say like you know nearly pull down the power grid to get enough light in to make that kind of work um albert whitlock but, yeah. by the way was the map thank oh, you right Thanks. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Whitlock, yeah and uh just That's sensationally wild. good those matte paintings but but honestly the moving's just the movie's just dull it's just there's two reasons why it's well, dull it's dull. Hang on, I got to get this out. It's dull because yeah. it's dull. But secondly, it's dull because it's actually kind of chromatically dull. 
Like there are scenes in it that I just felt like, I don't know, like somebody had completely run this through three layers of optical um, printing and just killed the life out of the contrast, the saturation. And so the images looked flat. And so when I say dull, I really mean like they're just lacking dynamic range, uh, contrast and, and chromatic kind of brilliance. And so the film just looks kind of, to my eye anyway, overall just like a fairly, well, I don't know the word to use really, but dull is like a matte version of a movie. Does anyone else? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's not the, it's not the most, I mean, I think probably the, the best looking footage is inside the emperor's palace when they, when the, when the, the guild uh, guys come in and they have their big thing with Jose Ferrer and the spice, you know, the uh, hippie spice dude tripping on orange spice in the glass jar, you know. Uh, um, but um, my bigger problem is with the like, we're going to cram this insanely dense book into a movie and we're just going to, we're just going to like, A, we're going to use voiceover, but as internal monologue that you can hear, not as voiceover. And Ooh, we're going to yeah, use, and we're just going to jump huge gaps. Uh, it's almost like one of the Nolans wrote this, you know, in a, in a, <laughs> in a moment, in a moment of expo expository haze, you know, where it's just like, they just jump these massive things. And it's like, Oh, Paul shows up on Arrakis and or on, on uh, yeah, on Arrakis. And then like within 20 minutes, he's the leader of the Fremen that no one's ever met in the depths of the, deep desert and you're like whoa, whoa hold on a second like i know he had the dreams but and i i get the dreams are all connected but they it, i mean once you get to the middle of the movie they just go like they just put it in the fourth gear and they're like just, just get the info out just get the info out like oh he trained all the people uh and somehow he made all these uh weirding modules and you know whatever i don't know it's just so it just, so it I just goes at light speed there I just have to share a little something about the the there's a there is something I was just trying to find it there is something interesting about the way the film was shot um the DP who worked with Lynch on um Elephant Man which was um, you know black and white uh kind of had yeah. this understanding of some of Lynch's sensibilities and this kind of high con kind of look that he wanted and they developed a system where they put a piece of uh, plexiglass uh some kind of a curved piece of plexiglass in front of the camera and it, there's a name for it, but I can't find it right now. I'm just looking for it. I read about it a couple of days ago, um, but they were able to shoot with this system in place that created this kind of uh, like a slight diffusion, but it also increased somehow uh, like the, like push certain things into the dark a little bit further and other things into the light. It wasn't, they didn't describe it quite as contrast, although that's what I'm describing, huh. but um, yeah. I'll see if I can find it uh, in a second. But it was, that was when you talk about how it was shot, that was one of the things that was really interesting. Was um, the plexiglass but, tinted in some fashion or was it just curved and just like <sighs> bent the light weirdly on the way into the- Well, I'll, I'll, I'll find it and I'll, I'll get back to you on that. But I was gonna say, so when the pandemic started here in March, um, I, I yeah. started this cr and I knew Dune was coming out, uh, the new version of the movie. I was excited to see the new trailer. Uh, this Dune was showing on HBO Max here, which we can also talk about that later, which is kind of an interesting story yeah. too. But, but um, I, so I was 
I was uh, taking these really long walks because there's nothing else to do. So I'd go on these like, you know, 10 mile walks every day. And I started listening to audiobooks and I'd never read Dune. So I listened to the full unabridged version of the book Dune for the first time. And I will say this, the David Lynch movie is very close to the book, like in a way that is really surprising to me. There's things that Lynch added that I actually think are really kind of brilliant additions. One of them is the weirding modules, this a technique of these weapons that use sound from the voice or whatever, but also the, um, the third stage guild navigator is an invention yeah. of the movie. There's the characters are described really? in the book, but not at all like that. So it's a, it's a Carlo Rambaldi, uh, like huge, like six foot tall, like, you know, 20 foot long puppet, um, that's in that case that's filled with colored right, smoke. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then has like this really horrible mouth opening control. Yeah, yeah. But there's this whole thing about those navigators that's kind of interesting where the guy who comes in with the bulging thing in his head and mm -hmm. talking through the microphone that's translating what he's saying, he's like a first stage navigator. He's being deformed by the spice. Then there was a concept for a second stage navigator that they never show in the movie that looks weirdly a lot like the John Merrick. It sort of looks like an elephant right. has this prolonged snout, but is still somewhat human. And then the third stage guild navigator, which is that kind of weird eraser head baby kind of looking thing <laughs> that's in the big glass case. And that's a total design of, of Lynch. That's kind of him bringing some of his um, stylistic um, decisions and choices to bear. There's another thing in the book that's incredibly interesting, and I hope this is in the Denny Villeneuve uh, version that we see uh, hopefully later this year or, or later next year, I mean, um, which is that there's a, a whole element to the book that is about uh, this idea of the messianic uh, complex, this idea that there are people who are so willing to follow and believe uh, in someone who proclaims to be the Messiah, right? To, to be this godlike figure. Mm -hmm. And in the book, Jessica and Paul, they use that knowledge of people's willingness to believe to sway them. And so there's a disingenuousness that's not portrayed in the Lynch movie that's sort of at, at, in a, some background in the, the two primary characters where they're sort of in a way utilizing these myths and these ideas and these concepts to sway the people to follow them in this kind of um, somewhat disingenuous way, which is really I, interesting. I so there's a cynicism in the book that isn't present really yeah. in the movie. I haven't read the book, but in the in the book, do they still consider him to be the Quetzalcoatlrock or is he is he he he's believed, you know, that's, they, he's believed they had, to be that by everyone except the people who try to depose him uh, right. and who eventually are overcome by the greater powers that he's able to amass. Right. Uh, and it's they have not the political intrigue is in the movie, but it's overridden by the mystical nature, you know, um, from the Bene Gesserit that come in and say, oh, maybe he is the, you know, they just keep saying, are you? He is. Oh, no one's ever done this. Oh, it must be him. You know, it's standard messianic shit. But there's a lot of fun uh, exploration of politics yeah. and manipulation of politics through religious orders and various means, which is just kind of fun. It makes the text yeah. of the book and the, and the contextual aspects of the characters much more interesting. But that's not really so, portrayed in any way in the Lynch film. 
Okay, so first of all, I just want to put on record that I really like David Lynch, like uh, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart. I loved Wild at Heart. Oh, Twin yeah. Week. I was yeah. obsessed with Twin Peaks, right? So my mm-hmm. hatred of this is uh, just based on its dullness, <laughs> not based on Lynch, right? I'm David Lynch. Yeah, I, I think it's thought, a totally fair reaction. Don't get me wrong. Okay, now the other thing I was going to say is, and this is just uh, partly visual effects, partly, well, mainly, I guess, the plot. But it's the same problem that I had with Mandalorian. These frigging sand creatures that are giant worms, which appear. Well, I haven't seen spoiler. the second, Man- second season of Mandalorian, so don't go. Too okay, far well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I just blew it because there is one. <laughs> There's one of these in Mando, and oh, there's one in Beetlejuice too, this, so that's fine. <laughs> what the heck do these things eat? Like, like just basic physics, right? You've got something that big that's going to move through a fairly tough thing to move through which is sand it's a lot of caloric uh, a lot of caloric burn yeah exactly there. and and a, like a huge amount of bulk like you have to eat a lot of stuff to become that big and there's never enough stuff around in a desert with no water or at least not water that wasn't stored miraculously in an underground uh, swimming pool how do you like get that <laughs> much food i mean it just it it defies any logic to me like that's what i always love about really good VFX creature work. When you speak to somebody that's a really good creature designer, like they they start from a principle of like, well, what is this climate like? And like, is it a predator? Because if it's predator, its eyes need to be closer together so it can do good stereoscopic depth thing. But if it's a a non-predator, it would probably have its eyes on either side of its head to cover more for something coming up on it. The difference obviously there between say, um, you know, like a a wildebeest and a lion, you know, and these things aren't like accidental. These aren't, these are like, they think about the backstory, they think about what caused it. And then you get even further into like, oh, well, uh, you know, this is in an iron rich soil environment and there's going to be red, blah, 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 and that'll feed through to blah, blah, blah. I love all that stuff. That's what makes for me marvelous visual effects. Kind of, they, they, they produce an entire culture or a, a it's not a backstory, mm-hmm. but it's like a, an environment upon which this plausibly comes out of. And then you hit Dune. And in June, you've just got this bloody great worm that somehow miraculously is able to eat enough stuff and is attracted by vibrations, which again, like would have to have some reason in my head that you would be stark raving mad about vibrations, that you would either be <laughs> sexually interested in them or just hate them enough to go after them. But like just saying, oh, we put a thumper in the ground and the thing comes. It's just, it's just like... Well, they have rows and rows and rows and rows of teeth. So what's what's getting stuck in the teeth, you know? Yeah, why do you need that kind of a... Like, whereas, you know, when somebody's talking, oh, well, it eats a huge quantity of uh, something as a whale and it has to kind of, like, do this or it's, like, got to rip sort of flesh off and it's a shark and, like, you know, and there's, like, logic to this stuff. That's when it's... That's when I find visual effects. The visuals deliver and enrich the story so much. In this, I'm just going, where'd the worm come from? Like how do the how do the worms get enough to eat? Like you know how do they even get enough energy to move? And I just I just find it like I got no interest anymore in this is the worm. This is Mike's uh, this is Mike's breakdown of the Spider-Man physics yeah. problem. <laughs> well, the, the, the do you know the how much you have to Herbert... vibrate the the sand? To, oh yeah, yeah, of course. To move through it. Yeah. yeah. So the Frank I, I I don't want to frighten you or anything, but the Frank Herbert book doesn't have. Any in the first book anyway has no in-depth explanation of the uh, physiology, the life cycle, the um, 
you know, the life in the wild of the worm uh, beyond what we see in the film. And I will tell you this, that that trailer uh, for the new Dune, after reading the book and rewatching this movie again, which is just a guilty pleasure, I can't help myself, but um, it looks the same. It looks like, I mean, it looks much better. Oh, the effects look better, but yeah. it's the same, it's, it's giant the same worm, story. Yeah. It's the same, the only uh, thing, the same thing, the only thing worse than the worm from a visual effects point of view, from a humanity point of view, the only thing worse than the worm is the budgie smugglers that uh, Sting is wearing. I mean, seriously, dude, like those, oh. <laughs> those swimmers are like just outrageous. Like, uh, and I think I, I think I looked up. He has ninety words in the entire film, which you know, yeah. Like the whole time, he just looks like, like, dude, seriously, like. By the you know, way, when's the rest of the band joining up? By the way, that move that his taking that movie and that performance is what broke up the police. Oh really? <laughs> oh, there yeah. are other things that broke up the police. Well, yes, but I've I've he I heard a story that was told to somebody I know directly from Stuart Copeland, who said that, yeah, to your point, Mike, there the the rocks were already you know they were already living on the rocks in the police. The, tan uh, the but tantric. Yeah. When the movie when the movie came out, when the movie came no. out and they were recording the last record. Yeah. Uh, Stuart Copeland used to, while Sting was in the vocal booth, Stuart Copeland used to get in the studio and read the reviews for Dune over the, over the, uh, the, <laughs> the comms. And apparently, apparently Sting said, if you don't leave the studio right now, I'm going to stab you. <laughs> I, I can actually believe that. I think, yeah, you, if you've yeah. ever seen Stuart Copeland and Sting together, they just are like oil and water, yeah. right? It's yeah. like... You ever have someone in your life that can just totally press your buttons? Normally, it's your kids, right? Like they just know exactly yeah. what to do to really annoy you. That's Stuart to Sting. It's like yeah. Sting's like all yeah, like, yeah, awesome. I'm gonna be, you know. And, and then Andy Summers is like, I'll be at Robert Fripp's house. You give me a call when you're uh, ready to make a record. I seriously just am always <laughs> reminded of Spinal Tap, right? Like they're fire and yeah. water, and Andy is like <laughs> lukewarm water. Like, yeah. Just, I love all three of them separately, but together. Yeah, I saw them in Sydney when they reformed, and I was just kept on saying to my wife, "Oh my god, I just hope they stay together long enough to make it to yeah. Sydney." <laughs> like, sure. Please, just don't break up before they get to Sydney. Yeah. Um, hey, um, no, I, I found I that bit on the, the police, but, yeah. The the thing you were talking about earlier, Mike, about the look of the film, I found that bit. If you guys wanted to hear, oh yeah, I can just read yeah, this. It's so. kind of interesting. Um, so Freddie Francis was the cinematographer, right? And he had shot Elephant Man. And he was really used to like how the aesthetic of uh, Lynch and what he wanted. And he used this uh, system, the light flex system, um, which he'd used uh, previously on the movie, The French Lieutenant's Woman. And the mm. light flex, they describe it thusly. It says the light flex system is a mechanism which allows a controlled pre-fogging of film. The unit is attached to the front of the camera. There's a curved plastic glass uh, front that you shoot through and above. There's a frosted screen with a low wattage electric light shining through it. Light comes ah. through the screen, hits the window in front of the lens, and the lens then shoots through this window, which is illuminated. It's all done in camera, and it's, it's one of the diffusion. It's yeah. So it's uh, it gives a beautiful texture, which is what uh, could be likened to candlelight. Specifically for Dune, uh, Francis said he used the. Uh, the light flex uh, for any number of sequences. For instance, there's a moment in the ornithopter where Paul sniffs at some raw 
uh, melange spice on his hands and everything whites yep. out. And that was done using mm -hmm. that light flex system. Well, that's so cool. that's part of what that look is, I think, that you were talking about, which, you know, may or may not be uh, successful. It's literally like a, it's literally like gate haze, but in front yeah. of the, like. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it and, and gate haze would reduce the contrast, the chromic kind of range, yeah. the. It would do everything I don't like about this. You're just film. flooding the yeah, because you're just flooding the 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 that silver there. Well, it says it was developed by this guy Gary Turpin, the British cinematographer, and it. Yeah, uh, well, he's it, off my Christmas it, card list. But it, it it had fitting each of the uh, Dune cameras with a small generator, a filter hood, and a rheostat to vary the light intensities. Oh, and by right. dialing in the reflected light, Freddie Francis was able to gain a far greater latitude over contrast control, fill light, and color tints. Kind of interesting. Well, because you're you have the light coming into the lens, and then you can you're basically adding more ambient light around the front of the lens. Yeah. <laughs> crazy but not directional <laughs> all right so effects yeah. wise like uh is there are there any effects in this movie that are are good besides those map pages we highlighted so, so there's i don't know it's good but the the only clip that ever gets used from this film which means that the thing that everybody likes is baron vladimir hooning around Harkonnen. on his yeah flying rig around the tons vapor, of wire work yeah. sort of yeah, the wire work thing. Like, and it's obvious that he's on wires, but I'm willing to say that at the time that this came out, it wouldn't have been quite so obvious that he was just on a standard wire rig. Like, it sort of felt like he might have had some propulsion thing. But that was that was interesting, and uh, he was so grotesque and so disgusting, um, mm -hmm. and he he made for therefore a good villain. Like, I wanted him to to not succeed in any way, shape, or form. He was truly gross the uh the bleeding of his facial pus was <laughs> thoroughly um i'm sure that did exactly what it was meant to do and causing me to you know basically not want to eat dinner um so some so great that like body one, horror style practical effects yeah. for sure yeah yeah the so heart that, plugs like, you know, and the was, eyes stitch yeah. shut oh, the heart plug is good yeah that's also an addition of the of lynch the heart plug and that Kind of oh, really? that's not in the in the books huh. at all uh there's a huge amount in this show of i mean obviously all traditional effects like we were talking about but uh rotoscoping is used extensively in the eye replacements giving everybody the sort of oh, blue yeah. on blue eyes yeah. from the spice yep. which yeah, isn't the greatest yeah yeah and then of course the the personal body shields right the um the so, uh, that's my favorite that's and that's, that's my actually, favorite effect. That's a really personally. interesting one. It's like it, it it the impenetrable shields of it's like uh, slabs of electricity. Yeah. And uh, the uh, they said that it's kind of interesting. They used a bunch of different techniques. It was Vanderveer was the company who came in and took over after Apogee bailed um, on the show. And so animators from Vanderveer uh, rendered faceted shield formations. It says using line drawings and basic rotoscoping techniques and each individual image that they would um, rotoscope uh, into the um, planes that they were creating uh, was then broken down into specific surfaces with separate animation, with a separate animation shell, cell for each um, shield segment. And then a computer controlled ripple wheel system was built into an optical printer that allowed them to get the desired sort of diffusion and three-dimensional effect oh, that wow. they were going for. And, 
you know, some of that stuff, I think so it looks so much hand better. Painted, on, right? Yeah. It, it, well, it's optically composited into the yeah. roto shapes and yeah. then yeah. sort of tweaked uh, and sort of uh, made to kind of flicker a bit and ripple. But there's some. no, but there's no, there's no computer generated no. work on that. Which and is what's crazy because it looks like it, it you looks would assume CD, yeah. that it was like a basic, you know, um, a basic volume, you know, stretched over somebody with some weird, you know, primitive diffusion or something. But I, it's my favorite effect in the whole. It's the thing I've always remembered. It's the it's one kid, of the most like, interesting visually, for sure. Yeah, it is it's interesting cool. visually. I think it's just I mean, super cool because it's it's so basic. Like it makes sense. I think it's the kind of effect though that it looks better literally projected on motion picture film because you're going to get so much. Uh, of a sure. greater kind of balance and you're going to get that breakup with the grain structure and the projection. Yeah. It, when you watch that on video, if you have, if you're not watching like a super remastered 4k video of this thing, which I don't think exists, <laughs> I don't think it's good. It's going to look pretty shitty. Like I think the transfers that I've seen of it, none of that stuff looks as good. And I don't remember it looking that way when I was 14 and I saw this in the movie well, theater. But... I think if you were looking at it when you were 14, it would have looked very cool. And yeah. also we were so visually early in our visual language of computer graphics. I tell you one of the, the, the fascinating things about that kind of stuff for me, it has happened in Star Wars, again, getting back to Mandalorian, like when they were making Star Wars and they were doing, for example, the guidance system for being able to shoot the, um, you know, the empire that were trailing them in the, Millennium Falcon, they had these very primitive line drawings for what Luke and uh, mm -hmm. Han were using XY, to target. XY yeah. monitor kind of stuff, yeah. But of course, in the future, you could have the most sophisticated graphics in the world, right? And so- <laughs> well, it was in the past, you... technically, but- but No, but, but you know yes. what I mean, like the, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, very funny. But my point is <laughs> that level of technology was all that the filmmakers had to use yeah. to indicate what a future high-tech society would use and so now you get these little moments in things like Mandalorian where they have a very similar thing and they go, well, we kind of have to use the same dodgy looking yeah. line <laughs> graphics because that was the established technology of the day. And then there are other shows. But we have the completely... ability to do every, anything. It, it's like, flipped. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you get Star Trek on the other hand who kind of go, I'll oh, bugger that, right? Like <laughs> we'll... Yeah. Um, we won't sort of have Ahura uh, uh, sticking a thing in her ear in our latest shows. We'll have holographic displays where the, the table rises up and envelops the hands of the operator because, yeah, we know that this is around the same period as, as Kirk, but let's face it, that would just be hokey and embarrassing. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of cute in a way because I find like, like Star Wars, same thing with when it was trying to explain the Death Star, right? And it had this, um, you know, these lovely graphics that came up to sort of diagrammatically show uh, the run for the Death Star and how the you know the the uh, torpedo would go down the chute and cause the thing to blow mm -hmm. up, kind of in a way, it's so wonderfully simple that it is actually a very good infographic, right? But yeah, yeah. dotted lines, in, bing, 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 yeah. bing, bing. But it's if, like a little pachinko machine. <laughs> yeah, I know it's sort of weird, isn't it? It's like so you get this like uh, an interesting problem for the designers of the day when they have to reference something that was made with such earlier tech and then sort of somehow just tweak it enough that it was it's it doesn't look wrong in a modern show and yet still yeah. has the uh the retro nod to the original otherwise you just can't explain what was happening in the timeline that they couldn't do that and i guess the the number one of those is who hasn't um had a blue line vaguely going through them on a holographic display to indicate yeah. <laughs> that they are a hologram 
and uh, yeah. there's always a static breakup when the hologram finishes, right? And yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, which probably came from someone initially trying to shoot a television or something, and the sink is off, and they're yeah. like, yeah. oh, that looks cool. We'll just keep that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the glitch yeah, so in, in art Star part Trek, of the... In Star Trek, or, or for that matter, even in uh, you know some other shows, they'll have a hologram that's completely real, and then at the end, or just you know, you realize it's a hologram. But they still have yeah. to have that kind of vague, bluey, badly sort of holographic thing <laughs> to uh, to stay in can canon. I, can I say my other my other favorite scene that's clearly visual effects based is when the third stage navigators fold space, mm-hmm. and they sort of fly out and they shoot the beams out of their heads, and they like. They they don't actually fold space from what you see, like what you would think of some like, you know, Tesseract type, you know, interstellar vibe. Uh, you know, it's like it's more of like a psychological, like a psychonaut kind of thing that you would see probably more in like Mandy or like some sort of kind of weird genre thing with the with the the old um, laser, the, the laser um, circular laser and smoke that they composited, you know, in that used to see at concerts and stuff way back. It's in the same things in like the Judas Priest, you know, one of the Judas, early Judas Priest, like I think heads are going to roll or break in the law or something music video where it's like they have all the cool lasers. It, it's just great to see all that stuff just stacked up and optically composited. I like the, the, the sort of cool genre nature of it. Uh, but, but, yeah. Even though it's not like uber sci-fi, it, it gets more like cerebral lynchy. Well, it's like trippy, no, no, like I, I uh, Pink Floyd music video yeah, or something. Like, yeah. Well, because they're basically tripping out. The third stage navigators are like in a constant like psychedelic haze, basically. I'd be curious to see. I, I never have been able to uh, find any information on any of that sequence. But, you know, before Lynch came on board, there was the, there's, of course, the Jodorowsky Dune, right? Which was sort of, they made a documentary about it. He, um, he was going to make his version of that film and had a, you know, a (laughs) telephone book sized sort of visual script that he'd assembled Mm -hmm. uh, that was totally spaced out and, you know, acid influenced beyond belief, I think. And he had, um, uh, he had assembled, let's see, Dan O'Bannon, but he'd gotten who to head up the art department where he had uh, Giger, Giger yeah. uh, Ron Cobb, which you see, and he which had you can uh, tell Mobius. In, yeah, in some of the scenes when Paul, there's a, there's a scene when Paul's walking through like a, like a hallway that's very clearly Giger inspired. Oh, totally. Like all dark ribs and like. Well, some of know, the, that's like, what, that's what I think is so interesting is some of the set design and art direction is very on par with the kind of work that you wind up seeing in in Alien. It's it feels like it's yeah. from that same hand. It's it has some of that mm-hmm. DNA in it. And same with like the I think the design of the still suits that they wear, which is uh, yeah. Bob Ringwood or Ringwald. I think Bob Ringwood. I think is the name of the costume designer. And I think those things they hold up. They still look really which, cool today. Well, you know. Yeah, I think Patrick Patrick Stewart described it as the most uncomfortable costume he's ever worn in his life. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but can I say can I say something else? What, like, let's you know, like I know you guys somehow vaguely like this movie, but the thing is, the other <laughs> thing that I find stunning about this movie is that not only do the effects look really dated, and and I'm going to underline the fact that like you're comparing it to films like Alien 
and uh, Blade Runner and Empire. All well, I'm not, of those I'm not comparing up. it on quality. I'm, I'm I'm saying that I'm what I'm saying is they they're connected okay, but, okay, uh, in but, behind but, but, the scenes. But, but, but in terms the other thing. Of some how of is it that this film? Okay, but bear with me on this train of thought. Right, mm -hmm. of those films I just described, they all stand up remarkably well today in visual yeah. effects, but also in hairstyles. How is it that this film ends up with the most embarrassing haircuts in history? Like that Peter DeVries uh, character, he has got the weirdest friggin' eyebrows and the worst hair. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's like, like they just are so dated. Like even Sting's hair, at, you know, which you'd think you couldn't go yeah, wrong with. Synchronicity just, to hairdo. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, I mean, not since Mad Max have we seen just like a, a mullet go wrong kind of level hairdo like this. I just feel yeah. like they've just got everything's dated. Whereas, is it just testament to how magnificent those other films are that even like in areas away from the technology, they seem to still have an art direction, a taste, a head department? Yes. And yeah, it is that. I mean, if you think works. about like just this, just think about. Like who scored this movie? What a terrible idea! Toto, like what? Toto, I know it's so it's <laughs> such a weird. It's so ridiculous. And right? it gets into when he's riding the worm and he goes like, bow, bow, like it's like Flash Gordon. Yeah, it's you know, terrible. like it, there's like so Flash much Gordon. Flash Gordon in this. Yeah, yeah, but it's like Flash Gordon wasn't serious, so yeah. like you can get away with like Queen makes it cool, right? But like in this case, Toto doesn't make Dune cool and Dune doesn't make Toto cool. Yeah. You know, Steve Lukather and all the other stuff aside, right? But uh, can I say from a referential standpoint, I found rewatching this the other night that the opening act when they're sort of after the weird like fade in and out, you know, never ending story voiceover thing <laughs> where they clearly faded in and out because they, they had to cut her lines because she was on screen and they had to figure out a way to edit so they like faded her out faded her back in but once they got into the the emperor's you know galactic emperor's palace and the way people were hustling around that first like 10 minutes had to be a major influence on luke Besson for fifth element i mean that yeah. has yeah a lot of that that sort of yeah. world very fashiony world building it's the galactic emperor's palace it's going to be the the high point for all you know all that stuff in their world some of those miniature shots i think of those environments are what give the film and the, the big grand hall and stuff where he yeah. at the end where they're walking down the stairs which has that kind of those uh very kind of deco-y kind of baroque mm -hmm. columns or whatever i think a lot of that stuff is what gives the it's it's where you could see where the filmmakers are really trying to give a kind of a grandiosity and an epic quality to the to the film. It never quite arrives there, but I think they really make a a noble effort in some areas. Whereas uh, they certainly make some poor taste choices, yeah. as you're saying, Mike. I think in some other areas for sure. The first act, I think, is the tightest. And if you were gonna, you know, in terms of design execution. Granted, you're not getting into the other larger environments and the other things, but you know he's got his weird little iPad that he's where you know looking at the, looking at the different uh, planets and learning about them, and that's primitive. That's a very primitive like, oh, a racket is blah blah blah. Error, push again. Like it's very you know. But then you get the the super cool you know Benny Jesuit witch that comes in when she's bald with the thing and the you know it just it starts out really good because I I was watching it again I was like oh this is a lot cooler. Like I, I remember yeah. having issues with this, but the first act feels kind of good. And then you're like, Oh wait, 
Well, <laughs> if, if they'd <laughs> amped up the steampunk of the fighting machine, right? Yeah. But even the even the fight sequences just seem so lame compared to what we yeah, saw in, poorly staged. in uh, Empire. Yeah, yeah, just really. I'd agree. But hey, here's something. We should discuss two things. One of them we should be discussing is just the cast of this film. Like there are some really, like Sean Young appears in just about everything around this time. This she must have had the best yeah. agent in the world. She just yeah and got Blade in Runner. the best films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, yeah, there were a lot of people. Like I say, Patrick well, Max, Stewart, Max who, von you know. Sydow, Patrick yeah. Stewart. Yeah, Jose Ferrer. I mean, yeah, it's like there's some um, good actors. And Jurgen uh, uh, Prunchow, whatever. Yeah, Jurgen Prochnow from yeah. Das Boot. I will yeah. tell you. What do we just, think of uh, Kyle as Paul? I think this is his first major film role, isn't it? Is this yep. movie? No. Yep, was Blue it. Velvet before nope. before Dune? After. No. After, right? After, yeah. I get, I and of course, I think I think he's all right. I think uh, he's he's. I think he's a little too old. For the role uh, at the time, the the really? role is supposed to be sixteen, I think, in the book or seventeen, maybe. Well, and luckily he... it wasn't Scott Bayo or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think you know, I think he does a fairly serviceable job. He's he's handed some uh, rather clunky and difficult dialogue. The voiceover stuff that you were talking about before, which all the characters have voiceover, almost all the major characters in the story. Um, and the the thing at the beginning with the princess Irulan, like kind of describing part of the world, the book itself is every chapter opens with an excerpt from a book written by Princess Irulan, who winds up later being married to Paul Atreides, and you know as part of oh, the, so he becomes it. the emperor or whatever in the at the end of the book. But um, yeah, but the uh, that's part of the actual um, writing of the book, and it's it's but it's very. I think poorly handled and a bit clunky within the context of the film. But the, um, there is a second cut of this movie, which I don't know if either of you guys have ever seen. There's a, there's a much longer cut of the film that I've seen Ooh, a couple the times. Oh, I bet Mike wants to see that. It's, <laughs> no, no, Mike really, wants to see a longer version that's the of one this movie. That, that's the one that David Lynch himself <laughs> declared was just intolerable. Yeah. Oh, really? He hated it. But I was going to ask you It's about interesting that. though, because it's got some different, is... some different bits and pieces in it. But is there is there a film that you can think of where we've got an internal monologue um, like this, where people are thoughts are sort of you know voiceovered over the top that works? Like it seems to me to yes. be a, which one? Memento. What film? Okay, because I was struggling to think of Darko, anything that maybe? has succeeded that has uh, done Donnie this. Darko it's just a happened. really hard cinematic device to work, I think. Yeah, M Memento, and the and the only reason I say that is because, and I know I harp on, I like Christopher Nolan, but I know I harp on his expository weaknesses uh, quite a bit on the show. Um, <laughs> Memento is, is actually his perfect foil because his character can't remember anything, so he has to talk about everything all the time. So it's expo exposition is, is an inherent piece of the, of the narrative. Um, and, and it's that, I think that's why it works obviously, but cause you can't remember anything. Uh, and I think it really works. There's another one. Um, I'll think of it. Cause I, I think about this a lot too, in terms of voiceover and, uh, I mean, certainly assassination of Jesse James works because it's more of a documentarians type, you know, net geo voice. It's not 
even though it's Jesse's monologue because he's mostly talking about he's talking about Jesse the voiceover um in ter- as if it were someone describing him you know f- whatever it's not a personal monologue but it is about him yeah I think mm-hmm. you can do that well I mean like in the I referenced it over the second Mad Max films when you get this whole dialogue and then you realize that the little kid that you've been watching through all the movie yeah. is retelling this now as an adult I mean, I think yeah, that's rich and that kind of works. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The feral child, yeah. But but this idea of like cut to each character and have them thinking something just seems god-awful clunky and just a really hard cinematic trick to pull off. And I I just, yeah, you know. Yeah, thought bubble. <laughs> yeah, it's really. And I mean, exposition, like really good script writing um, manages to sort of get you that without having to be so in your face about it. Because it's yeah, odd I mean, I, for the I, audience. I get, I get why he did it, um, because there are characters who have telepathic powers, and so he probably started there and was like, "Wait, what if I had everybody do that?" You know, um, but it's a, it. I agree. It's what it's the hardest thing to pull off. Uh, I think it's like half successful in this because it has a purpose. It has an actual reason, but it just yeah. it it's not executed to its fullest extent. I think there was a lot think. of concern because of the because of the sort of complexity and density of the book from which the film derives. I think there was a lot of concern that there were so many like weird names and weird descriptions. Mm-hmm. It's the year ten thousand, right? And yeah, uh, so I think there was some concern that without some of that exposition that audiences would be lost but you know i think i you know i would probably tend to lean more on the side of like you know audiences are pretty smart you can just throw out all kinds of crazy words and people will figure it out star wars is proof that that's possible you know but blade runner is a perfect example of obviously not ridley scott's intent but the studio's intent to add the voiceover which i never minded personally because it's so hard-boiled you know, noir style that it's, it fits thematically, you know, mm-hmm. it's very mm-hmm. Philip Marlowe, Dashiell Hammett, whatever. But I also like it without it, but I don't know what it would be like to have seen the movie for the first time without it. So it's sort of hard to reconcile it. Uh, I, I sort of like them both in its, in, a, in their own way. I mean, that's just cause I like hearing Harrison Ford talk, but do you- do either uh, of you guys know, have you heard, I, I thought I remember reading at one point that the new film uh, that's coming out was going to be two films? June? Is it, uh, is it, well, or is it two movies or is it just I know one? it's one movie, but it's it's also, he's already working on a series for Amazon, I think. Based uh, on Dune? I think Children of Dune, whatever the next book is. Oh, okay. Like he's going full tilt. Uh, Maybe that's June. what I read. Isn't it Dune Messiah and then June and Children of June? Or Dune Messiah. Yeah, whichever. whichever yeah, Dune Messiah comes the... after. Yeah. Um, that's where they all plot to kill Paul. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's something like that. It's one of the other books. I thought it was Children of Dune, but I couldn't remember. I can't remember, but that might be. I mean, I'm assuming this movie is going to be like three hours long. It kind of seems like it needs to be with all the density of the of the script but who knows again to mike's point 
we have so many more visual storytelling tools now that you could get away with so much more visual information without exposition than Lynch had at the time that, you know, maybe it's not as much information as you think because you have easier ways to relay it. Um, so that's, I mean, I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I was just I, looking so to see as if we've been there talking, was a running time. I, uh, I have I have seen a uh, quote that he's going to split it into two films to ensure that it's not cut up into a million pieces and that it, the story oh. remains. Um, so that may be Great. true. Um, yeah. I wanted to get so so we haven't done a VFX show, haven't done a lot over the uh, pandemic, um, mainly because the film industry shut down. Um, but I wanted to get your take, if we can, just looking forward. So this next June is meant to come out in 2021. Um, who knows what anything's going to do these days. But the big news that happened uh, this week is that uh, Warner Brothers decided to dump their entire slate day and day with uh, HBO Max. And uh, Matt, I think you mentioned this briefly earlier, but um, this is uh, like a kind of a titanic, monumental kind of thing to happen. I say titanic because it's like they've hit an iceberg uh, in how much sort of... Uh, you know, shock and horror, this reaped through many of the filmmakers in the industry. Um, I think uh, we've probably all sort of seen those reports, but I'm interested in your take on this because uh, in light of that, we've had Disney come out with just this huge amount of um, production aimed at their streaming service. Are mm -hmm. we in the last days of cinema? Uh, I don't think so, but I mean, I, I feel like I had a, uh, a reaction that's probably different than a lot of people and maybe some might find it apocryphal but uh you know to me i look at the the news of um the desire for this year for to have some of these films premiere day and date uh on a streaming service for one month simultaneously while being released theatrically not as like a uh you know a screw you to the filmmakers or to the uh, film business or to the theaters, but just a recognition of the reality, at least here in the United States, where no one is going to go sit in a movie theater to watch these movies. Like, I think the release of Tenet in the United States, like, was a huge disappointment. It didn't do well here. It maybe did more, better numbers internationally. But I think that that was a, that was a, a calculation error on the part of the studio to release it in that way at that time. And I think that if you sort of project forward to the release windows for some of these films here in the U S not to be too U S centric, but we're the ones that, you know, because of our incredibly uh, competent leadership are in the worst shape of <laughs> just about <laughs> any place in the sort of Western world these days. But um, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, to me, it's an, it's, I don't find it to be disappointing, upsetting. Uh, I could see where for theater owners and distributors, it's pretty upsetting. I could see where for some people who get a piece of that pie, uh, they're going to have to be paid off or you know bought out or uh, compensated in some way, hopefully. But and it's maybe not the intent of what they were going for. But you know, I don't think anybody wants uh, this to be the situation. I I, I question whether or not that's really the motivation. Maybe there is some nefarious motivations in the part of some of these streaming service uh, uh, CEOs and boards or whatever, but I really think, you know, 
there are great theaters and there are great theater going experiences, but you know, there are also horrible theaters with screens that aren't much bigger than my television with, you know, people talking, people looking at their phones, like, uh, with people putting their feet up and kicking your chair, people talking. And we, we used to joke about, um, this comedian, Rich Hall in the seventies or mm -hmm. early eighties had a thing he called sniglets where he made, he had people, yeah. it was so corny, <laughs> but he had people send in these fake words. And one of the words I always remembered was cinemuck. And Cinemuck is the <laughs> sticky material that your shoes stick to when you walk into the darkened theater, um, which is like melted, like, you know, dots and popcorn and soda pop or whatever. <laughs> and who knows what else. But so, so I look at it and I just feel like, you know, I, I, I understand how upset people are and how it's sort of shocking. And the, But I also feel like I don't. So then we could just wait and not see that movie for another couple of years. Does the studio want to sit on all that money? that they've invested in these films for another year and a half, you know, or do they want to put yeah, I mean, it the, out there and the, get people to see it? The Bond film is the really interesting case in point, right? Like there's guaranteed box office from that Bond film. They're spending a million dollars a month on interest payments as they don't release it. Um, they yeah. tried selling it, I believe, uh, and could get uh, four. Uh, okay. I'm going to get, I think I've got my numbers right here. Like they were going to get uh, 400, for it if they sold it and they needed a minimum of 800 or something like that and uh and so it was like only half what they wanted which would only basically break even let me let me just i just want to say one other thing about that like because i thought about this when the pandemic started and we locked went on lockdown here in the us in like mid-march and everything kind of went quiet and that was right before they were going to release uh no time to die is that what it's called the yep. with the love with the love boat yep. font <laughs> on this poster um the uh the thing that i immediately thought and i remember talking to a couple friends of mine here about it was you know if i was in charge of the the people on the bond film i would broker a deal with you know two or three of the big streaming services if i could and i would say all right for 1999 everybody around the world is going to be able to watch this movie like you know the, the day we were going to release it, you just got to pay your 20 bucks and you can watch it. And you would have been the heroes of the lockdown. Like it would have been the biggest re like ever online release that could ever happen. I mean, people would have been just going crazy. What the new Bond movie is going to be on TV. I can pay 20 bucks and watch it at home with my whole family. Like, I just think that would have been a marketing coup d'etat that would have been so awesome. But, you know, maybe there's, I'm sure there's business I, uh, contractual yeah. interests I don't yeah. know about, but. Can I jump in here too at yeah. some point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I've i actually had a number of this exact conversation with about two or three different groups of friends. And it sort of first started with Nolan's response and then it most recently with uh, Villeneuve's response, which I think uh, I really appreciated Villeneuve's approach. That I think it came out today. Um, he sort of harps mostly on the what you were saying, Matt, about the overall cinematic experience and, and how valuable that is to the world, you know, human interactions and whatever. And I, I see both sides, obviously, as a filmmaker myself, I've seen my films that I've produced or directed or whatever at film festivals and other things on big screens. I appreciate seeing an, seeing an audience's reaction. I mean, that is, you know, hearing people, you know, cheer clap cry whatever it is and at the same time i've been a proponent of not that i 
my opinion means much, but a huge proponent of day and date for years. And I think back when Soderbergh and Mark Cuban tried it with the landmark Magnolia kind of thing that Cuban owned, and they put out, I think it was like Bubble and like a couple other movies that Soderbergh made, you could literally walk out of the theater and buy the Blu-ray or the DVD. You could watch it on Magnolia, uh, you know, or, or rather um, HDNet that he had also had. So like he owned the triumvirate. He owned each part of it, the distribution, the theatrical and the, and the, the distribution, the television distribution. And I personally am a fan of maximizing your marketing dollar all at once. So let's say I spend, you know, gajillions of dollars marketing my $150 million movie. Uh, I want to go to the theater, have the blown amazing experience and call my friend Matt who hates going to the theater, not you specifically, I'm just using his example, uh, or has 19 kids or whatever his deal is, can't get to the theater. And I go, dude, I just saw a movie, whatever. You got to watch it. And you go, great, I'm going to watch it tonight. Marketing dollars well spent. And then I call my friend Mike who goes, I'm going to go see it at the theater, but I'm a Blu-ray guy. So I'm going to see it at the theater because I love the theater. And then I'm going to buy the Blu-ray because I want it for my library. All of that's happening from a single person's viewing experience and then they told two friends and they told two friends logically that makes sense to me i'm not a studio person i'm not a studio accountant or any of the the people that that manage those machinations and there's obviously windows for a reason and all i i get it but i feel like the the theatrical experience and the distribution experience is rife ripe and rife for a change and to your point matt about the you know, subpar to stellar theatrical experience, I would rather not go to a 26 screen theater and I'd rather go to a six screen theater where they're all Dolby theaters, Dolby Vision theaters, right? I would rather go to a chain that's only IMAX, mini to big, right? Like let's let's make it an ex the experience that the, the filmmakers want. And sure, maybe there's less theaters you can't get your movie on 7,000 screens on opening day. But, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's just my. See, I, but I think, see, I think that's actually something even bigger going on here. Looking and listening to the Disney um, investor call yesterday, I think what's going on is the we're going to just see a huge titanic shift to it not being a blockbuster movie. It'll be a blockbuster 10 part TV streaming thing or an eight part sure. streaming thing. And that the idea of the mega film as a, it's going to be like the same thing that happened with records. Like right now you can buy an album, but the album is actually just a, an echo of what once was because we had two sides or piece of vinyl, you know, like yep. it wasn't a two sided album when it was on a cassette, it, but we still sort of thought of it as being two sided. Then when it's got to a CD, well, mm -hmm. okay, there's not two sides at all now, but at least it's the same kind of length that we had for a, an album. And then when it's streaming, like an album makes no sense. Like you could be three songs, it could be 40 songs. Right. There's no reason why it should yeah. be the same number or the same length. I got a feeling that that's the way that movies are going. It'd be like, why do you think this two hour thing is a movie? It'll be lots of Mandalorian level sort of event telly things that cost a bunch. Don't get me wrong. There'll be good yeah. work for our visual effects compadres, but it'll, yeah. Sorry. It'll be more work, in fact, by multiple of, you know, 
five, 10 or whatever, based on length of a series, you know, or series order versus a two hour film. Because if you just look at Game of Thrones, like the the monumental value of Game of Thrones was far more than if you'd made a couple of Game of Thrones movies and their sequels. Like it it made HBO a you know an immense kind of platform upon which for a whole bunch of other shows to to happen. And similarly, like the kind of spate of stuff they're rolling out in the Marvel, Disney, Pixar, Star Wars. Uh, you know, the Star Trek Discovery work that I've seen this season is some of the best television environment and visual effects work I think I've ever seen. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And by the way, we have a story about that on FX card. Um, but I completely agree (laughs) Um, with you, right? Well, to your point, Mike, though, you, but you can still buy vinyl and you can still buy record player and you can still do all those things. So there's, there's always a place for that, um, historic um you know medium and so True, to your but, point but where the every, money you know is everyone today, gets 75 inch tvs right? well not for the artist but no 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 i know i know not for the artist but this is a point i was also heading towards right that yes that once you take away the blockbuster the mega name actor that can draw an opening weekend crowd changes yes because now you can afford to have a show that that is like uh queen's gambit that just really yeah. grows without having you know, mm-hmm. the rock star level mega star that's going to get people because there's no way that that would exactly. work as, I, as a theater experience, right? You know, yeah. a film about chess with no major star in it is just not going to create the kind of sensation that that, that, that TV show created. And I love yeah. that TV show. So it's yeah. going to change dramatically, um, I think, what, what happens. I don't think it's going to be less work for visual effects, but it's certainly... I don't Definitely think it's not. going to be a matter of does the movie get shown in the cinema first or on telly. I think it's going to be the idea of the film is going to be because like, isn't that what Marvel is already? I mean, it's almost like a serial movie from the old bygone yeah. days of Flash Gordon, right? It's yeah. not that there's an isolated film anymore in the Marvel universe. Do you all, think I that think a lot of what? Do you think a lot of the sort of like the the hand wringing and the sort of uh, hurt feelings the the upset um despondency that we're sort of hearing from uh you know different voices uh with this hbo max proposal that's maybe slightly different than the total thing like is it is it just a that this is an inevitable shift and change that's exacerbated by the nature of the pandemic like is this you think this is where we've been going for a while yes I think this pandemic is definitely exacerbating much like you could look at commercial real estate and how that's going to be completely decimated by the pandemic, but for not for the better, for the people who are going to lose money and and get affected by it, but by the fact that all of a sudden people realize I don't have to be there for that meeting. And I never had to be there for that meeting. And now we can do other things. Not that people shouldn't get together and have interpersonal things. I'm just saying there's a, a bit of a leveling of the playing field. But to Mm -hmm. your point, I think, yes, I think this was an inevitable thing, maybe a a longer term road. But it was also handled really badly, Jason. It was a bad, bad management play. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not taking the the current to Matt's point when he said about H I'm not taking HBO max as the gold standard here as this deal with Warner brothers. I'm just saying conceptually in some way moving towards some shift of the paradigm 
is also that the these giant tentpole directors realize that they're not actually in control of the films because they're not the ones spending $150 million on a movie. They're the draw. No one's going to go see a $150 million movie directed by nobody uh, from a name perspective, much to Matt's, uh, Mike's point about, you know, getting butts in seats in a theater with a name actor, you know, as, you know, any investor, any investor rack you'll see will be like, give me a, give me a, uh, talent from column A, column B, column C, and X, genre X, Y, and Z, and I'm guaranteed to give you X dollars in foreign presales. No one's reading that script. That's a strict mathematical spreadsheet decision. Uh, the, you know, like, uh, Tenet isn't owned by Christopher Nolan. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, he has ownership and equity in the film, but he didn't put up the 150 or 200 million dollar move you know, money. So the studio, whereas before they were maybe a little more deferential to, to Nolan or to Villeneuve are now saying, hold on, we're in the pinch right now. I'm not saying it's the right, it's, they did it well, but they're now saying, hey, by the way, we, we need to call some shots here because we're about to take a bath on this and we have to figure out how to, how to recoup and get our movies and our slate clean, to your point, Mike, about interest payments and other things. You know, there's a whole infrastructure thing financially just all around that's impacted, even if you want to go down, take it out of the entertainment industry and to people not being able to pay rent and landlords who have mortgage payments and banks that have loans and it goes all the way up the chain. You know, it's the same, it's the same thing, yeah. right? One, what I think we're going to see is a new sort of production company model where you're going to have what happened with Bad Robot, but it's also happening around uh, Favreau at the moment, where you have like these creative, um, universe creators, like a production company and a group that's known for being able to solve in this space. And they have certain amount of visual effects, um, art direction, uh, conceptual artists and stuff in their own sphere. And the film company says, hey, I need you to look after this kind of franchise, this thing, and help steer us in a multi-story uh, kind of way. And that you'll have, whereas like, film was a director's medium and TV was a producer's medium, but the producers were the showrunners of just their show. And I think we're going to see these new fiefdoms of like, as I say, like a bad robot where there's more than just uh, writers and there's more than just sort of people planning out and being stuck with the talent. They actually go right down into close ties to editorial, close ties to and, and all of the backstory and all of the canon and all the mythology mm -hmm. is all managed. I think you could see that coming out of Peter Jackson's camp. I could see like a number of major talents that would then have a pool of people around them. And you'd almost say, like you do to a consulting company, like you go to PwC and say, I need you to give me your, you know, your um, partners and I need like a major team on this. Give me the team for this. And that they would be your kind of uh, brand managers but there's some other words it's almost it's like the it's almost like the brand. commercial it's almost the uh, commercial production company model where they rep you know 10 directors and 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 have a have a stable of creatives that they're putting onto you know any project not that i would wish the commercial production model commercial production company model on feature films in any way but it i mean it's broader than that, but it's, it's, it's a production. I get what you're saying. It's a, it's a production company. That's, that is a creative force, 
uh, on the large scale, not just you know on its. And look at Mandalorian. It had project. Mandalorian had a set of different directors. Sorry, Matt, but Mandalorian had a bunch of different directors, right? And we, but they were obviously attracted to that Favreau's sort of team. Yeah, they weren't like fighting him. Yeah, Favreau and Filoni. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to just say too. I, I still, I still think what one thing that we will see though, when all this pandemic business hopefully uh, dissipates uh, and and we get back to some semblance of normal and start maybe kind of rebuilding some of these things, is I think we will still see the big occasional event film. You know, that'll be a thing that will people will go see it. People will go to the theater to see these big big tentpole pictures. But I have to say, last night. I watched with my family here a movie on Amazon Prime that I'd never heard of starring Riz Ahmed called The Sound of Metal, or just called Sound of Metal, I think, about a, a heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing. <laughs> and it sounds like, what a bummer, right? But it's an independent film, mm -hmm. excellently written, beautifully directed, it beautifully acted. It is an incredible movie, and it uses editorial and sound design in a way that is so original to portray the loss of hearing and the Im implants that are um, put in at one point. And it's so incredible, so emotive, such a beautiful, yeah. independent film. And I watched it on, I have a 50-inch TV with a decent sound system in my living room right around the corner. And it's like, I we loved it. We watched it. It was great. We, it, it was better watching it at my house than it would have been watching it in the theater. And there are movies like that. That's probably the best movie I've seen this year, and it's the end of the year. And I watched it here at my house, and I wasn't in any way impacted by watching it in that way. And eat, look at like uh, Kelly Reinhardt and her film First Cow. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but like another indie film from a great indie filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Saw that on, on television here too. And like it, it hasn't detracted in any way from the ability of the small indie filmmaker to still get a film made that with a low budget, tell a great, compelling, character-driven story that's like her, maybe a personal story, maybe an original story, and to still be able to do that and get it in front of people and I think make money doing it, you know, maybe not the same huge money that you used to make when there were fewer films being made and fewer outlets for content, but then you will still have these big films that'll come out. I think it's just going to, I think it's going to change. I don't know that, you know, if I were to go see Sound of Metal at my theater, I would have watched it on, in a small theater where, you know, there was, it was cramped and the screen was small and like, you know, those little tiny sort of like art mm -hmm. house theaters they tack on. Cause that's all that's here. You know, I'd have to drive, you know, hours to go see it somewhere else. And I'd wait. Yeah. I'm in New York city. Home. So I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I, I, I have my the art ha art house quote theater here has a giant screen, so it's yeah. like you know I would see that movie in the theater probably more for the sound design to your point because you want to be enveloped by the thing. I love yeah. going to the movies, so let's just keep that yeah. you know regardless of what we're all saying here. I think all three of us love sitting in the theater and experiencing a film on a grand. Oh scale, yeah, we're not we're not independent or otherwise. Something. Yeah, we're not yeah. advocating this. We're just observing yeah. what's happening. And I just, 100%. by the way, can I just say, because Australia, we have our movie theaters are fine, right? We've gone, but the trouble is yeah. you Americans aren't letting us have any movies, right? We're like, yeah. like <laughs> give us something to watch. We can go to the cinema, like it's not a problem. Um, can I just say what, two things? Firstly, we can need to finish this up, but uh, I, I want to make two points. Firstly, the real estate thing that you said was pretty funny because in Australia, we're now back to everybody going to work. And so the traffic is back. The real estate thing <laughs> yeah. hasn't really materialized, but we have moved from 
like the, the business you don't want to be in in Sydney is selling suits and ties because miraculously right. we've moved to <laughs> LA fashion where like, you know, what, yeah. All right. <laughs> like a, a T-shirt and jeans is considered acceptable at a business meeting. And I fear we're heading towards Hawaii where, where anything less than a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt would be considered uh, bad form. Um, so, so yeah, so it's remarkable how much you bounce back. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say, uh, and just, you know, by way of an ad, I guess, is we're going to discuss tenant next on the show. And tenant is a really interesting proposition here because I've seen it twice in 70 millimeter months ago. And you guys haven't, right? You guys, as we speak right now, I think have, and you're going to be able to see it how on television. Is that right? Uh, on just next Tuesday, December 15th, it's slated to come out for sale. So I'm going to actually buy a copy of the yeah, movie. Yeah, I'll buy I, it. Christopher Nolan's going to owe me though. I'm going to watch, it. Gonna I'm watch, gonna watch it, it on, I'm going to watch it on my Apple watch the way that Nolan intended. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll be watching it on my TV, you know? Okay. So I'm not going to spoil it for you, but there are some incredibly interesting aspects to discuss about the movie going experience of that particular film. And so when we have our next show, I've been so, like, there is, it is a monumentally yeah. interesting film. <laughs> At it, but at so many levels, at plot level, at how they made it level, at uh, the artistry, at the acting, but also there are a lot of technical issues that can be discussed. Well, and to tie it back into tonight's episode of the VFX show, I know from Twitter that Paul Franklin of Double Negative, of Christopher mm -hmm. Nolan fame, is a big fan, a secret closet fan of the David Lynch Dune movie. <laughs> well, well, you, you, you know that he wasn't involved in Tenant, right? Andrew Jackson oh, was the Australian. Oh, okay. Andrew, who <laughs> who I used to work with, went to Deneg, and the last two Nolan films, being uh, Dunkirk and this, were Andrew Jackson uh, films. And Andrew is well, he's Nolan adjacent, I should say. <laughs> yes, because he's a brilliant uh, Nolan. He, he's a most. Um, we'll talk about it next week, but he's an amazing practical VFX guy. Like, hmm. you know, a, a, yeah, great guy, Andrew. Um, anyway, that's coming up. And uh, and and I just think that uh, it'll be really interesting to hear how you guys uh, process the movie-going experience. But again, yeah. I'm not going to No, I'm excited. That. Yeah. I have a 65-inch yeah, TV with a reasonable sound system and 4K, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, should look pretty good. I saw... I saw the 70 millimeter print at a preview. So it was pristine in a big, yeah. big ass cinema. Oh, I, with yeah, a huge throw. I, I can't. Right with a guy with an organ that came up at the front playing the, the organ before it went back down oh, to the cool. stage. Art Deco, just mega event. So it, it's got to be the most extreme uh, comparison of what's possible. But yeah. anyway, uh, super interesting discussion coming up. But we have kind of run out of time now. So final thoughts on this. June, does. I guess the best question I should ask you is how much are you looking forward to the next uh, Greg Frazier, you know, shot, uh, you know, June, 2021, assuming it comes out in 2021. I mean, I'd be, I'd be excited to see the next Greg Frazier mayonnaise commercial. So that's, you know, yeah, you're, you're not, you're not, you know, you don't need to go too far on that one, but, uh, but I mean, I, I, I have liked every Denis Villeneuve movie. Me too. Uh, you know, so Enemy might be one of my in the top uh, above some of the other ones, but um, I, I have nothing. I have nothing but 
high hopes and yeah, expectations super ex- super excited too like I, I i love the story i actually think it's a really fun story i'm gonna I listen kinda, to the audiobook yeah before yeah, the movie it's just fun it's like it's so immersive and there's so much detail and um and i, and so I love eric the filmmaker roth, it's a great cast i'm so excited for it eric roth did the screen adaptation didn't he and uh, i think i'm right in saying that and um this you know eric roth's uh Previous screenplays include like Forrest Gump and uh, Munich and uh, Curious Case of Benjamin mm-hmm. Button and just so as much as I disliked this version, um, assuming that you guys see it before me and tell me that I'm not gonna you know want to poke my own <laughs> eyes out, um, I'll probably have to go and see it just because Greg Frazier is shooting it. But um, yeah, man, it's a uh, ooh, it'll be uh, it'll be dangerous. <laughs> Anyway. Oh, boy. All right. Well, again, thanks so much, guys, for doing the show. Thank you guys uh, for listening. We really appreciate it. As I, as I harped on about, we're going to be doing um, Tenet, which I have been bugging these guys to do for like, I don't know how long, like 10 or 15 emails every week for the last two months. Say, like, can't we do Tenet now? Yeah. So uh, you can, can thank Donald Trump for us not seeing Tenet. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to share with uh, our VFX show listeners, if you haven't already seen it, I started a new interview show, uh, and it's coming out every Monday. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about that. A, yeah, it's a, it's just a, just for, it's really just for fun. It's totally for, it's kind of selfish. Uh, it's a way for me to connect with uh, old friends and colleagues uh, who I worked with at ILM in the '90s, and uh, I've got two episodes Matt, out. There's another one that comes out. Haven't you got enough shows? On... Haven't you got enough shows for the entire? Like, haven't you kind of trying to get a show a week for the entirety of 2021? Didn't I read you say that? Yes. So I, I haven't recorded all those. I have about 10 no. recorded now. And uh, I'm going to try to have one a week for the entire year of 2021 and uh, one a week for the rest of this year. There's two episodes out now, one with um, VFX producer Kim Bromley, who uh, worked on Hook and Galaxy Quest and Twister and uh, Speed 2 Cruise Control and <laughs> Small Soldiers. <laughs> and um, she's a veteran visual effects producer. Um, and, uh, she's married to visual effects supervisor, Dave Carson, which is kind of cool too. And, um, she was one of my favorite people ever to work with. Second episode is with our good friend, Ty Ruben Ellingson, who is a mm-hmm. concept designer, worked a ve- lead vehicle designer on avatar and works a ton with, uh, Guillermo del Toro and, uh, Neil Blumkamp. And then I've got, uh, now I've got another huge series of, uh, so let's see eight more episodes that I've already recorded and I've got people coming out of the woodwork who want to come on, but the show's called 8111. It's 8111. And, um, I won't tell you what it means because somebody's going to bring it up eventually. And it's oh. kind of funny. It's a good little inside joke. That's of. what I wanted to ask you. That's exactly <laughs> yeah, what I was going to ask you because I think it's great that you're doing this, but I was like, huh? what? I thought it was a 911 joke. And then I was like, uh, no, I can't make no, it. It's 8111, so 8111 is how you find it. It's on all the podcast things. And um, I'm trying to keep the interviews to an hour, but I've got several now that are over like an hour and a half, which is kind of a drag. It's But it's all about people's personal journeys, personal career stories. Mm-hmm. Like, how did they get to do what they wanted to do? It's less about tech, although we do touch on a lot of tech here and there, but it's much more about the people. And I really started it as a thing for my students more than anything else. And also selfishly for me to chat with old pals. But um, because a lot of my students have this idea that the way to get from college to their dream job is a straight line. 
and that can happen no. but i think yeah. it's so much more circuitous uh the way that we get to where we want to go and sometimes we find that uh the thing we really love is something we didn't even know that existed until we started working somewhere and so yep. i wanted to sort of share some of those stories with um with young people in particular just to kind of get them to understand that like hey you know like this journey is a crazy one and getting to work in this business is is uh can be great fun but it's also like it's not necessarily like a plus b equals c like sometimes there's mm -hmm. a really roundabout way that it can happen and that's kind of part of the fun of it too and that it really is about the people in a lot of ways more than anything else and so that was kind of the impetus behind it but new episodes every monday 8111 is the show there's a picture of a stormtrooper helmet on the logo um so check it out if you're interested you know how when you throw spaghetti in a in a in a bowl and there's like one piece kind of tangled in all the other ones and, you, and you're trying to eat it and you don't know where it ends <laughs> that's that was my path yeah yeah me too <laughs> and uh jason what have you been up to um you know living thinking about a lot of stuff spending a lot of time with my family which is awesome because you know as people may or may not remember i travel a lot uh, for a lot of stuff and I have not been on an airplane since February, which is a very weird thing. Uh, but I'm, but I, I'm happy to, you know, I, I, I sit with my son who's almost 14, you know, every day he's in his room, but you know, we're, we're interacting about his homework and games or whatever. I literally see him all day, every day, which would never happen under any normal circumstance. So there are, there are positives to this, uh, and it's also given my brother and I a chance to really evaluate our business and where we want to go, what we want to do. Uh, I think we've made a pretty conscious choice that 2021 is going to be our year to make at least one, if not multiple feature films, which we've been meaning to do for quite a while. So um, that is sort of a big focus for us right now, which we're really excited about. May I suggest that after we do uh, Tenant, we could do Monsters of Men, um, uh, oh, Mark yeah. Toya's independent film, because yep. that's a film that uh, I think would resonate with you in a discussion, and certainly I'm, is a yeah, I'm in it. <laughs> You're in it. Yeah, I'm an assassin in it. I don't. I don't I remember Mark, seeing you in it. I, I, I consider Mark a very good friend, and he came to New York, and me and my friend Mike Gomes spent, you know, a few days with him, uh, doing all the New York stuff. And Mark initially asked me to camera operate, and I said, "You should get Mike to do that." And he's like, "Oh, okay, cool. I got a small, you know, the there's someone shoots Mike Goldman. Uh, that's me. Really, get yeah. out of town." Yeah. Okay. So I was like, yeah, I'll well, do that. I borrowed a, I borrowed an airsoft uh, replica pistol from Stu uh, Mashwitz and cause he <laughs> has that stuff lying around. And uh, yeah, we had some fun, walked around the city in typical Mark fashion with no crew and, you know, a couple monopods and some, and some red cameras. And, you know, I, I, I think his movie's fantastic. It's a great, super fun, just big action movie. It's like Mark as a movie, you know? So yes. And it and it and it looks great, and I, I I'm I'm very excited for me. Just had his IMAX premiere in Australia, uh, yep. and to your point, they had like 400 people in the theater, and you know, uh, I'm just really uh, proud of what he's 
managed we, to do. We spoke to Mark, and uh, by the time this goes out, there'll be a story up on FX Guide about that um, and how he did it. And yeah. uh, the effects are really interesting for how incredibly independent they are and how many millions of dollars yeah. he saved by doing them the way that he did. But that's for the yeah. show after uh, Tenant, and yes, uh, and I look totally forward to fine. that now as much as the next. All right, guys, well, it's yeah. been great. Um, uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this, uh, even though I didn't enjoy the film. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there, there you go. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you then. Bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.